Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. In this episode, Dr. Dan Lieberman joins me on the show. Dan is a professor and the vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry at George Washington University. He studied the great books at St. John's College and then went to medical school and did his residency training at New York University, learning psychiatry at New York's famous Bellevue Hospital. He's a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a recipient of the Karen Foundation Research Award. He is the author of Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex and Creativity and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. I think you're going to love what Dan has to say in this episode. But before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, Earthgrown Evidence-Based Nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and into flow quickly is Genius Mode. It took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First, basically because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up with a decaf coffee and the focus and drive and motivation and mental clarity lasts all day and there's no nasty side effects or sleeping problems that you get from some of those other supplements that have a ton of caffeine in them. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any subscription discounts you get at BrainFirst. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. So Molecule of More is uh, one of my favorite books, and I know that our listeners are going to love some of the things that you're going to be talking about in this episode about dopamine because of how much it really drives our lives. Did you consider some of the other neurotransmitters, or was it always really clear that dopamine was something that you wanted to write about? It was really dopamine from the beginning. And the reason is I started my career as a psychiatrist working with patients who were addicted to drugs and alcohol. And um, as we write about in the book, that's one of the things that dopamine does is it um, causes us to lose control of our behavior um, in terms of drugs that artificially stimulate this neurochemical. And... um, it's funny, you know, when I was a resident, we learned that dopamine dysfunction is the reason for addictions. We also learned that dopamine dysfunction is the reason for schizophrenia. It's also the reason for attention deficit disorder. And one of the things that confused me is that on the surface, these look like very, very different disorders. And um, I, I couldn't figure out what was the commonality. And then when I moved on from my training to become a uh, faculty at George Washington University, I developed this fear that a student was going to ask me that question one day and that I'd better look up the answer. It turned out to be a lot more complicated than I thought. I spent years researching this and trying to get it straight in my own mind. And ultimately, the answer turned out to be so interesting, I felt like I had to write about it. And uh, I think, as I mentioned in our pre-chat, dopamine is perhaps, you know, after reading your book, it's very misunderstood in the pop neuroscience and pop psych world, often attributed to pleasure and reward. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. Can you 
unpack some of the ideas around what dopamine underpins and drives as far as our different behaviors? Yeah, you know, we do tend to think about it as the pleasure molecule. And it certainly does play that role, but it does so much more. Dopamine is really one of the main tools of evolution. It's designed to help us stay alive and keep us reproducing. And, you know, the way we frame it in the book is we ask people to think of this very simple distinction between up and down. Um, When you look down, you're looking into what we call the peripersonal space. That's the space around you that's within arm's reach. And it represents things that you have, things that are within your control, such as a cup of coffee, a pen, a cell phone. And your interaction with these things are modulated by chemicals in the brain that we refer to as the here and now neurotransmitters because they're things that are right here and you're interacting with them in the present moment. When you look up though, you're looking out into what's called the extrapersonal space, things outside of arm's reach. And those represent things that you don't have. They may be things that you need, things you need to survive, or they may simply be things that you want. Because they're outside of arm's reach, if you do interact with them, it's going to take place in the future. And so this whole idea of up, the idea of extrapersonal space, things you want, perhaps need, but don't have, all of these things are orchestrated by dopamine. So it's really about the, it's really more the chemical of desire than it is of reward. So we've got things that are out there and in the future driven by dopamine, the molecule of more uh, that drives desire versus the here and now. Uh, What are some of the the here and now chemicals? Some of the best known ones are serotonin. Serotonin um, has an effect on your mood, um, on whether or not you feel anxious. Of course, these are things you experience in the present. Another popular one is oxytocin. That gives us feelings of warmth and connection to other people and um, things like empathy. How we feel, how we relate to other people, the simple pleasure we take in being with someone we care about. These are all emotions we experience in the here and now. There's also um, adrenaline, uh, also known as norepinephrine, which is the fight or flight chemical. Um, That goes off when we're in trouble. So does dopamine, as a matter of fact. They do different things. Dopamine helps us to plan how we're going to get out of trouble, making the future better. Whereas adrenaline, norepinephrine, being one of the here and now chemicals, just makes us react without thinking, really just instinctually. One of the other things that I found uh, really interesting in the book is this idea of the differences between the dopamine desire circuit and the dopamine control circuit. So again, another perhaps misconception is that dopamine only does one thing, but it seems like it also underpins and uh, really drives a number of different, sometimes seemingly contradictory behaviors. Can you share your ideas here? Yes. So at its simplest, dopamine makes us want things, Um, things like a donut, a sexual partner, things that are going to give us immediate pleasure. And the circuits in the brain that modulate that, we call the desire circuits. And this is a very ancient circuit that we share with um, really 
primates, mammals, even reptiles, um, all animals are going to desire things that are going to give them immediate gratification. But as human beings, we are capable of thinking farther into the future. We may want a donut, but we may say, you know what, in the long run, that's not going to be good for us. And so we've got another dopamine circuit that we call the dopamine control circuit. And this helps us think farther into the future, not only about immediate gratification, but what's going to maximize our resources and our survival long-term. So this control circuit not only allows us to say no to the desire circuit when it's really not in our best interest to go after our immediate indulgences, but it also allows us to think about things that are going to have profound effects on our long-term success. And those are things that are abstract. Um, let, let me expand on that a little Please. bit. If, I'm, if something is in your peripersonal space, you're holding it in your hand, you can experience it with all of your senses. You see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, smell it. As it moves off into the distance, out into the extrapersonal space, our ability to perceive it drops off one sense at a time. We can no longer touch it or taste it. After a while, we can no longer smell it or hear it. And finally, it's so far away, we can no longer see it. At that point, how do we perceive it? Well, the answer is we use our imagination. And that's going to be controlled by this long-term dopamine circuit, uh, a circuit that is able to think about things that are so far away, we can't perceive them. Things that don't have a concrete existence, like a cup of coffee in my hand, but only have an abstract existence. The idea of perhaps mathematics, physics, or things like justice and beauty. And these are among the most sophisticated things that a human being's dopamine circuits are able to do. So we not only have the differences between the dopamine desire circuit versus the here and now uh, chemistry, but also the dopamine desire circuit versus the dopamine uh, control circuit. Yeah, and, and you know, so much of our life is this battle between mm. those two circuits. You know, the desire circuit says, I want this, I want that. Um, I want to sleep late. I want to overeat. Uh, perhaps I want to drink a little bit too much. And then the control circuit is saying, hey, let's think about this a little bit more carefully. Let's think more long-term. Um, maybe exercise is better than plopping down in front of the TV and eating a bag of chips. So knowing about all of this, I mean, I'm sure that there are going to be many of our listeners thinking, yeah, that's me. You know, if only I could get control of my dopamine or get control of my uh, desire circuit uh, and use more of this dopamine control circuit, like my life would improve dramatically, right? I mean, we've all had that battle between the choc chip cookies now, like I want them now, versus the future, right? The health benefits that we're going to get from making a different choice in that moment. So in knowing about all of this, uh, what can we do? It's a good question. And knowing is not enough, but it certainly is a start. You know, in psychiatry, we have this concept of something called the observing ego, and that's a part of the mind that's able to take one step back and sort of look from the outside and say, what's happening to me right now? And simply separating oneself off from these unhealthy urges is not a bad first step. 
So instead of saying, I want to eat these chocolate chip cookies, we might say, my dopamine circuit wants to eat these chocolate chip mm. uh, cookies. And it's not us, and we don't have to give into it. Um, if you pay attention to what's going on in your brain, if you have an idea of what the desire circuit feels like, what the control circuit feels like, what the here and now neurotransmitters feel like, you start to get a better sense of the orchestra that's going on in your brain. And the more you understand the orchestra, the more you realize that there are many players in there, not just one, the more successful you're going to be as a conductor. I love that. What a great hack. That Just that simple idea of it's not me, it's the, in this case, the, the dopamine desire circuit that wants that, which almost immediately you have this sense of there's a bit of a buffer there. There's that almost like an extra moment of pause where now I feel a little more in control about uh, the decision that I can make. So in the book, uh, you've talked about many of these ideas and how it applies to different domains. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about a couple of those domains. So what was one area that you found particularly fascinating in terms of applying these ideas of uh, dopamine to? I thought um, one of my favorite chapters was the chapter on creativity. Mm. Um, you know, as we mentioned in the book, creativity is perhaps the most powerful force on earth. Um, resources such as oil, crops, uh, minerals, all of these things are limited, but human creativity is unlimited. And when we apply human creativity to the problems we face, including the problems of scarcity, scarcity of food, scarcity of energy, um, it's able to do amazing things. Uh, in the 1960s, we thought the world was running out of food. And then came the Green Revolution, in which new ideas and technology allowed us to vastly expand our ability uh, to produce food on, on farms. And it seems like every time the human race gets into trouble, something comes along. Uh, somebody gets a fantastic creative idea and solves the problem. So creativity is really the human brain at its best. One of the interesting things we discovered as we were researching this book is just how closely creativity, the human mind at its best, is related to mental illness, the human mind at its worst. Um, they are very, very similar to one another. And the line between creativity and insanity is actually one that's very thin indeed. What are some of the things that are happening with regards to dopamine in terms of uh, creativity and also this idea that you're talking about this this thin line between creativity and insanity dopamine helps us understand the world by building up models and it helps us use those models to imagine hypothetical futures so I live in Washington DC if I wanted to get to New York I've got a number of different choices to get there I can take the bus get a real cheap ticket I can take um, plane, get there pretty quick, or I could take the train. That would probably be the most comfortable way for me to go. Mm -hmm. In order to decide which one I'm going to do, I do something called mental time travel. And that is that I create this imaginary model, let's say, of taking the train in my brain. And I use that model to imagine what it would be like 
And then I compare that to the imaginary experience of the bus and the airplane. That's a useful thing to do. But dopamine not only builds up models, it also breaks them down. Um, because I, I, I'm stuck in this model of there are three ways to get there. But there may be a fourth solution that I'm not thinking about. And in order to think of that fourth solution, I don't know, perhaps asking a friend to drive me up or um, who knows what, perhaps not go to New York at all, perhaps do a video conference with the person I was hoping to see. I've got to break that model down. And that's right. another thing that dopamine can do is it can break apart our preconceived notions of reality. And you need to do that to build things that are new. If I want to build uh, a new way, perhaps, let's say I want to make a piece of art that no one's ever made before, I've got to break apart my preconceived notions of reality. Now, the problem is that if I'm too good at breaking down reality, I'm going to become delusional. Yep. And, um, you know, it's funny, creative people often describe themselves as crazy. Um, they say, I'm able to have these wonderful ideas because I'm a little bit nuts. <laughs> and, and there's so much truth to that statement. And, and we see that um, people who are very, very creative often have children who get a little bit too many of those genes and go into um, insanity. Um, we see that one of um, Albert Einstein's children uh, suffered from schizophrenia. And, and it is a common, a common malady that we, we run across. When we're looking at addressing these types of things like schizophrenia, how much of incorporating what's going on with dopamine is considered in treatments currently? Like, is this something that has developed more recently or is it something that we've always known about in terms of the dopamine underpinning these kinds of conditions? The mental illness that's most closely related to creativity is schizophrenia. The essence of creativity is making connections between things that previously had seemed, seemed unrelated. Um, in schizophrenia, people make connections between things that truly are unrelated. Um, so for example, I had a patient who, whenever he would see a stop sign, he believed that it was a sign from his mother telling him to stop thinking about women. Um, so this, is an example of the dopamine system really gone off the rails. And so in order to treat this, we give medications, we call them neuroleptics, sometimes we call them antipsychotics, that very specifically block the dopamine receptors. Right. And they can work very, very well and help people overcome things like paranoid delusions and auditory hallucinations. But unfortunately, they do have these side effects of suppressing creativity, um, possibly suppressing some of the joy that dopamine can give people when they experience new things. So is it then a case of adjusting the dose? Like, is this a dose-related thing? Or is, you know, I'm imagining that there are some feedback loops going on and there's probably a fairly complex interplay with all these sorts of things. Is it a dose-dependent thing or are there uh, many other things that are going on here? Dose plays a role. Um, we want to try to titrate the dose very carefully so that we block enough of these dopamine receptors to stop the paranoid delusions while leaving as many of them open as available as possible so that people can experience normal dopaminergic phenomenon, such as anticipating new experiences. 
But dose is not the only issue. Another issue has to do with how tightly these chemicals, these medications, bind the dopamine receptor and how persistently do they hang on. A lot of the older medications we used to use grabbed on a little bit too tightly. So we'd give the medication, they'd lock onto the receptor, and then when the brain released some natural dopamine, it couldn't get through. And that made people's lives rather flat, dull, and uninteresting. Some of the newer ones, though, and um, I, I think quetiapine is a very good example, or clozapine is probably the very best. Instead of grabbing onto it like a bulldog biting onto a bone, it very, very gently taps on it. So that, that allows it to suppress the excess dopamine activity. But when some good, healthy, natural dopamine comes along, it's able to get in there. And people are able to experience the natural ups and downs of life. And, you know, not that I imagine that many of our listeners are going to be suffering from these sorts of conditions. Uh, I just personally find it quite fascinating to see the, particularly the development of these treatments and the drugs and how much more targeted we can get with them. So perhaps let's switch to another one of the areas where people might be thinking, you know, great, I now have this understanding about the difference between the desire circuit and the control circuit and, and dopamine versus the here and now state and, and the neurochem that underpins all of that. What's another area that people might find some utility in, like some practical takeaways they can apply to their life? Yeah, you know, one of the things um, that we as psychiatrists deal with a lot is relationships and love. Uh, and, and maybe that would be one that would be worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are few things in life that are more intense than falling in love. <laughs> um, when we fall in love, we feel as if the entire world has been transformed. Um, we are raised above the level of common humanity and we are as if we are gods. Um, it, it's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, and that's dopamine. Um, it, it's dopamine lifting us out of the ordinary, uh, showing us a rosy future uh, in which we will live in this perfect land forever. Now, if you've ever fallen in love, you know that as wonderful as it is, it doesn't last forever. Um, we call that passionate love. And the average lifespan of passionate love is about 12 to 18 months uh, after which it fades. Just long enough to have children. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then you're stuck, right? <laughs> um, the problem is that when it fades, a lot of people begin to question the relationship. They say, gosh, I fell out of love with this person. Maybe that's a sign that I need to go and seek after someone else. And it is critically important that people understand, no, that's not true. Uh, that is simply the natural history of how the brain works. And that nobody stays in love, in passionate, dopaminergic love their entire life. Love needs to transform from a dopaminergic phenomenon into a here and now phenomenon. And that's termed companionate love. Dopaminergic love is very much about the future. Uh, it's very much about more. I, I want more of this person. I want to be with this person forever. This person is going to transform my life, which is lovely. But companionate love is nice too. 
Companionate love is driven by things like oxytocin, uh, but also by endorphin, endocannabinoids, uh, and those can feel pretty darn good. But they feel good in a different way. It's not an excitement. It's not an enthusiasm. It's a satisfaction. Uh, It's a fulfillment. You're not looking for things to be better and better. You say, this is the person I'm in love with. This is my best friend. I'm fulfilled, I'm satisfied, I'm happy right here, right now. And that's the kind of love that can last a lifetime. Just going back to the passionate love, the in love part, what about, you know, I'm imagining that these desire circuits, they they kind of take over, they're uncontrollable, where it's pushing you to do things that you just think like, you know, this is a little bit ridiculous. Like I'm wanting to call this person all the time or text them or be with them all the time. And it's a problem in that, you know, you're not being as productive at work or you're distracted. The person's on your mind all the time and all those other crazy things that can happen. Uh, What's happening here? Yeah, I I think that this is another example of the close relationship between the wonderful things that dopamine can do and the insanity that it can cause. Absolutely. Uh, Being in love is is a form of insanity. Um, (laughs) Isn't it? It makes us act in ways that are utterly uncharacteristic. It, 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 it's a wonderful divine insanity. And, and you know, in, in ancient times, it, it was thought that it was a form of possession by the gods. Um, yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Um, people who were in love were both more and less than fully human. Um, they were more because they had this divine possession where they felt that they, they floated above the surface of the earth but they were also less than human because they were more driven by their animal nature. Um, Their judgment was impaired. You know you ought to be working. You should not be writing love poetry. Uh, You should be working on the annual sales report. Um, So yeah, there is that fine line between dopaminergic overactivity and insanity. Absolutely. What do you want people to take away from everything that we've been talking about? I think the best thing they can take away from this book is having a different outlook on their experience, their feelings, and their decisions. Um, To realize that there are competing forces within their brain. There's this competition between desire dopamine and control dopamine. There's also the competition between the focus on the future and the enjoyment of the here and now. And I think I personally have found it worth paying attention and asking myself, where am I right now? What's active? Am I enjoying the present moment or am I plotting ways to make my future better? And then ask myself, is that where I want to be? You know, when I'm when I'm sitting at my desk, I want my dopamine circuits to be active. I'm working on making my life and the world a better place. But when I'm spending time with loved ones, when I'm perhaps just walking through the woods, I don't want to be thinking about the future. Um, Too often I am. I'm I'm talking with my wife and perhaps I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. And that's not the right way to use your brain. Um, I, I think that Modern society does encourage us to be too dopaminergic. We're too achievement-oriented. We're too future-oriented. 
And I think we should pay attention to spending more time in the here and now, enjoying the present moment. Because as exciting as dopamine is, it can never give us satisfaction. Because satisfaction is something we get in the present moment. And in order to enjoy all of, in order to enjoy the fruits of our dopaminergic labor, we've got to be able to spend time in the here and now and experience fulfillment and satisfaction, not just desire. Lovely. So take control of your circuits. Guys, you really want to check out this book, Molecule of More. There are so many amazing insights in there, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, where can people go to find out more and to check out the book? Um, it's on Amazon. Um, they can go to my website, danielzlieberman.com. Um, there's moleculeofmore.com, um, all kinds of different ways. And I'll put the links in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Dan, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review, and of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon. Bye.